Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part three of Incidental Lomas in the Spleen. When we were talking about lesions before on malignancies, and let's talk about processes that involve both the liver and spleen. Remember before I mentioned that sometimes that'll help you be make the diagnosis of what something is. So what can involve both? Well, lymphoma is one. I just showed you a couple examples. Metastasis, such as melanoma, spleen and liver. These patients also will have nodes at times. Infection, patients who are immunosuppressed, candidiasis, aspergillosis can involve both the liver and spleen or just the liver or just the spleen. And of course, sarcoidosis. And sarcoidosis is one of those lesions that fits in between malignant and benign. Often, you look at this case here, you say, oh my God, this patient has lymphoma. And I've mentioned this before. A number of cases of sarcoid you, you pick up because the patient has an abdominal CT or a chest CT for reason, often not very clear, and patients do well except you find these lesions and all of a sudden the patient has metastatic disease or uh, lymphoma, but the patient's really not sick. And sarcoidosis is something which can look directly like lymphoma. And Gary Glazer, many years ago in the 80s, wrote an article about that. And I'll show you some examples. Sarcoid, multiple splenic lesions. Again, you could think in this case about infection with the right history. But often you look at the chest and you see lobular nodes in both hyalur regions and subcarinal. Often you can get a history in the patient has sarcoidosis. So sarcoid can indeed be a challenge to us. Infection versus tumor. Look at the spleen in that case, right? No real nodes in this patient. Differential diagnosis. Or this case. But here, very nicely, you have the hilum and the subcarinal region. Of course, here you also have liver and spleen. And again, at times, I think this case would be one of them. If I looked at the abdomen, I could consider sarcoid, but I really want to exclude lymphoma. Sometimes it's so obvious when you have the Swiss cheese appearance. To me, that's actually an easier diagnosis of it being sarcoidosis. Sometimes, as in this case, it can be very hard and there's overlap. Sarcoidosis, some facts. Age, 30s to 50s, African-Americans are affected three times more commonly than whites. Pulmonary complications are the most common cause of death, and interstitial fibrosis is the issue. And symptoms vary, but would include fatigue, fever, and weight loss. We talk about abdominal manifestations. We think about liver, spleen, and nodes as the most common thing. And in fact, when you look at the path, up to 94% of patients have liver involvement, though the majority is symptomatic. And the most common CT appearance is simply hepatomegaly. But you can have other findings, including splenomegaly and multiple nodules. And of course, um, you know, we, it's very, very important differential diagnosis. And then the spleen is involved in up to 59% of patients with sarcoid, with the findings ranging from splenomegaly to multiple nodules to, to other possibilities. So again, can be difficult. We talk about infection. Candidiasis can involve the spleen most commonly, but can involve liver and spleen. The thing about infection, when you have multiple nodules, usually it's a good history. The patient's immunosuppressed, so it's not an incidental finding. Yes, I can see splenic abscesses in patients with endocarditis and in patients who've had dental infection or diverticulitis even, but there's something going on. The patient's not doing well. You don't get splenic abscesses out of nowhere. And when the spleen and liver are involved, you think an infection is usually an immunosuppressed patient. Again, a few more examples of that case. Okay, very, very important. 
What else with the spleen in terms of incidental findings? Aneurysms are not that uncommon, particularly in older patients. Usually they're incidental findings. Pseudoaneurysms usually present with symptoms. In fact, splenic artery aneurysms are the third most common intra-abdominal aneurysm. Up to a 10% frequency, more common in women, but they're more likely to rupture in men. Most commonly associated with atherosclerosis or portal hypertension and pregnancy. There are a number of other reasons, as you can read from the chart. Now, pseudoaneurysms typically are associated with pancreatitis, but can also be a post-op complication due to peptic ulcer disease or trauma. But typically, it's pancreatitis. Now, as I mentioned, pseudoaneurysms are especially worrisome because they're more common to rupture and present with abdominal pain, melanoma, hematochesia, hematemesis. And in fact, you look at the numbers, pseudoaneurysms rupture in up to 37% of cases with mortality, then approaching 90%. You often rupture and exsanguinate. So you need to be able to diagnose it early and do something about it. Articles like this one make the point that splenic artery aneurysms are now easier to diagnose and they're often picked up incidentally. We look at this case, patient has an angiomyelopoma left kidney, and incidentally, oh by the way, there's a splenic artery aneurysm. Now, aneurysms can occur anywhere along the splenic artery. The most commonly not in the mid-splenic artery is, in this case, more commonly in the hilum. When we look at these aneurysms, we can see often these outpouching. We can see they're often multiple. Sometimes they're calcified in parts. Sometimes there's a rim of calcification. Sometimes they're included. Sometimes there's flow, which is really good, as in this case. One centimeter aneurysms, like this patient, typically are followed. Two centimeters are better, they're typically embolized. Another case, splenic artery aneurysm next to this patient's hilum in a patient with portal hypertension. Well, that explains the etiology. In this case, you can see what almost looks like a renal artery aneurysm is really a splenic artery aneurysm. I mentioned calcification, an example with rim calcification, but the splenic artery aneurysm is perfectly patent, and here it is very nicely in 3D. These days, uh, resection is uncommon. Typically, embolization for aneurysms over two sonomies will be done. Now, I mentioned pseudoaneurysms are difficult because they bleed. Here's an example of a small pseudoaneurysm with blood around it. These are the ones that need to be coiled. Very nice example. It can be very, very problematic in terms of management. If they rupture, as I mentioned, this patient could die. So very important uh, pseudoaneurysms like this. This looks like a pseudocyst initially, but it's a pseudoaneurysm with blood around it. It's one of the reasons why aneurysms or pseudoaneurysms are missed when you don't give IV contrast, and people assume you're simply dealing with a pseudocyst, which can indeed be a real problem, nicely shown in this case. Here's another example of a pseudoaneurysm. This was a physician who was exercising and collapsed, and you can see this large pseudoaneurysm. Now initially, and I looked at the old outside scans, I saw a lot of blood but no pseudoaneurysm. What happened is the pseudoaneurysm was compressed by the blood. Now a couple weeks later, you see the pseudoaneurysm. This was eventually embolized, but you can see the problem. This can easily rupture. This patient could have bled to death. So a very important diagnosis. Again, over 2 cm, you're gonna get embolization. Just a very nice example. I also would make the point that sometimes uh, pseudoaneurysms or aneurysms can cause uh, you to make a mistake or potentially make a mistake. This was initially read as a neuroendocrine tumor tail of pancreas. It's really a splenic artery aneurysm pushing in against the uh, 
tail of the pancreas. So again, you have to be very careful not to overcall. And here's just a nice example showing you that. Again, reconstructions, 2D reconstructions, multiplanar, but especially 3D can be very helpful in difficult cases. And look how nicely in 3D we see the splenic artery aneurysm with rim calcification. No, it's not a neuroendocrine tumor. This patient did not need a distal uh, pancreatectomy for neuroendocrine tumor. Eventually, this splenic artery aneurysm was embolized. So again, very important potential pitfalls in terms of diagnosis. And look how real that looks. I guess one thing that's helpful to me, neuroendocrine tumors can calcify, but not rim calcification. When you see rim calcification like this case, you better be thinking about an aneurysm, which indeed it was. What else? Splenic infarcts, not uncommon, can be segmental or global. Most commonly, the segmental can be one or more segments involved. Global basically means almost the entire spleen or the entire spleen is involved. A range of etiologies. Most of the time, bacterial endocarditis, atrial fib are very good possibilities. Sickle cell disease has infarcts, many of them. The spleen calcifies, so-called autoinfarction. And you can see... Um, Infarcts in patients with large spleens, be it due to tumor like lymphoma or just other processes. CT appearance, best seen with IV contrast, wedge-shaped areas of decreased attenuation. They extend to the surface of the spleen. They involve a portion, or as I said, global. They can scar over time. But again, beautiful example of a splenic infarct in this case, fairly large. Here it is, another example, splenic infarcts. Fairly extensive, two-thirds of the spleen is involved. Very nicely shown on this set of images. Now, I mentioned sickle cell disease a moment ago. In sickle cell disease, the spleen, because of repeated infarctions, is very small. Often you see a tiny sliver of spleen, even less than a centimeter in size. Sickle cell has the smallest spleens. Now, the variants like sickle thalassemia, the spleen can be normal in size and contain calcifications. This is a classic sickle cell disease. Look at the size of the spleen. Look how dense it is, or another example. Often the livers are larger in these patients, but very, very nice example. When you see here a relatively normal spleen with these punctate calcifications, remember punctate calcifications can be seen with granulomas disease like TB, but here it's so diffuse, it's sickle cell, but it's a variant, sickle thalassemia, where the spleen is often of normal size, sometimes even large, but diffuse calcifications are present. Again, looking at this very nicely on the coronal display, showing it very, very nicely. Now, I mentioned before about splenic abscess. I spoke to you about how it's rare, how typically immunosuppressed patients, multiple tiny lesions. But again, other risk factors in the non-immunosuppressed patient, diabetes, alcoholism, IV drug abuse are all problems. And these also can lead to infarcts. So the CT appearance, hypodense, Often rim enhancement may contain air, but remember only 20% or less of abscesses contain air. If you're waiting to see air, you're going to miss 80% of abscesses. Often the biggest challenge in the spleen would be a case like this first one, where could I say this was not lymphoma? The answer is no. The history may be a bit different, but you could not say this wasn't lymphoma. Other cases like this one, it looks like maybe the patient had infarcts, which now became abscesses. There's fluid, there's air bubbles. You got air bubbles, you got an abscess. But as I said, if you wait for the air bubbles, you're missing 80 to 90%
of abscesses that are present. So again, very important. I showed you this example, infection, multiple lesions, got to think about aspergillosis. Bacterial infection is not going to cause these little tiny lesions. They'll cause abscesses, usually one or a couple, but not this little miliary pattern. So hopefully I've gone through a number of different points in this incidental OMA lecture. I talked about lesion detection and definition, the range of appearances, how sometimes it's so easy and sometimes it's not so easy, defining lesion determination. We spoke about the need for recognizing things to avoid unnecessary intervention. Again, without a good history, most splenic lesions are indeed benign. It does pose a challenge for us. Uh, again, I try to prove that it is benign the best I can. If not, we need to move on further. Occasionally ultrasound or MR or PET can be helpful, and occasionally, though very rarely, biopsy is necessary. So with that, that's part three of three on the spleen, incidentalomas. I hope you enjoyed it, and let us know if you like it, and we'll do some more lectures on incidentalomas. And with that, have a great day.